0: Hello, and welcome to another message from Aldinga Bay Baptist Church. If you'd like to find out more about us or what we believe, please visit oldingabaybaptist.org.au. Okay, so uh, today is our last sermon from the Hebrews 11 passage that we've been looking at and sort of creeping back to chapter 10 and into chapter 12, where we are today as well. Uh, but just two thoughts as we come to this passage, uh, and that is that. Uh, Number one, uh, this, is a, this is a great passage, really, Hebrews chapter 11, isn't it? You know, it's, it's an inspiring passage. For some people, it's uh, one of their most favorite passages in all of the Bible because of the way that it just it just rolls off the page and, and uh, really the way it does inspire us. It's a story about people that were, you know, in many cases, just really legendary. Uh, they did great things for God. And uh, even though they've shuffled off this mortal coil, their their story continues to impact the world today. So it's a great passage. But secondly, the second thought I have is that uh, this is a passage we need to hear. In fact, it's a passage that we've always needed to hear. Uh, Back in the day, the recipients of Hebrews, you know, they were people, as we said, every time we've talked about this, they were doing it extremely tough. They were being thrown in jail for following Jesus. They were having their, their houses and their goods plundered and nobody was looking out for them. They were genuinely hated on by society. And to this point in time, they hadn't actually been martyred for their faith, but clearly the writing was on the wall. And so as a result of that, uh, Hebrews is written to these people because they were thinking about walking away from the faith. They were thinking about giving up on Jesus and because life could be a whole lot easier if they went a different way. And so uh, this is an important passage for them, but it's also an important passage for us probably in a lot of ways. But one of the things I was reflecting on is that I need to hear this passage because uh, my life can be all about the lump sum of this world, you know, about trying to find joy in this world uh, and just making that everything because that's what it can be like sometimes. You know, I want this world and everything that you can give me. But then I stop and I remember that, that Jesus actually told us a different story, didn't he? How does it go? You know, unless you hate your life and give it up, uh, you will lose it. You know, if you if you love your life and you just Go after this world, you will lose your life. But if you give it up, you will gain eternal life. It's a very different story, isn't it? You know, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, as he stands before Pilate. As if it was, my servants would fight for me, but my kingdom is not of this world. And so we need to hear that. We need to let that sort of marinate, if you like, in our lives because we need to be people that are living with the hope of eternity. But I think even a little bit more than that, we not just to have it as a distant hope. We want to make sure that we have it as something that really colors every aspect of our lives. And I guess the question this morning is, how does this passage in Hebrews that we've been looking at over the last few weeks uh, and into chapter 12, how does it help us to, to do that, to really live faithfully, to take it seriously and to be what Jesus would have us to be? i got three thoughts this morning, and uh, one is is this. It's a, a lesson from the past, and then secondly, a lesson about now, and then a vision of the future. Okay, we work through those things in this passage, and, and we'll be done. But uh, a lesson uh, from the past. And so it kicks off, I want to kick off just by rereading verse 1 of chapter 12. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It's pretty straightforward, but it's worth unpacking. Uh, Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, obviously all the people mentioned in chapter 11, they're witnesses to us in the sense that uh, we look at their testimonies. I think that's how we're supposed to read it. We look at their lives and they inspire us, you know, inspire us to run with endurance, laying off weight and sin and you know, things that hold us back that we might run with endurance. And I think, well, that's good. You know, that's, that's how it is, isn't it? To frame it another way, uh, when we see people that we really respect do something that's a little bit courageous we tend to be more inclined to do it ourselves, don't we? I mean, even silly things like, I remember when I was in high school, we went jetty jumping at Port Rickerby at the end of uh, school, and it was always, uh, let somebody else do it first, and if they survive, then okay, I'll do it now. You know, and that's kind of how it works, isn't it? And these people have gone first. They've jumped off the jetty first, if you like. And so, uh, really, there's two things, though, that I was reflecting on their lives. I thought, what is it about their lives that's supposed to grab our attention? What do you reckon? Well, Two things for me. One, uh, they lived bold lives of faith, didn't leave anything in the bank, you know, lived bold lives of faith. And secondly, almost always, if not always, they suffered as a result of following God. And that seems to be the point of the passage, doesn't it? And, you know, you see it all the way through. You look at those stories, Noah or Abraham or Moses, uh, they all suffered in some capacity, for doing God's will, and that's how it is today. You know, if I pick up a little bit further and read again some of the reading today, listen to the the names that are said and alluded to in uh, verse thirty-two, following. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets who, through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises stopped the mouths of lions, and quenched the power of the fire. And it goes on from there. It's a bit of a mixed bag of uh, legendary characters in that passage as you read that. You know, some you think, ah, how did they make, you know, the list? Uh, But nonetheless, all of them are people of faith. That's the point. That's how they made the list. They're all people of faith. And some of them, I reckon, sort of just galvanize you in your faith. One of the people that's One of the the people that's mentioned there, alluded to at least anyway, is Daniel quite clearly. They stopped the mouths of lions. And then it goes on, quenched the fire. Well, that'd be Daniel's three friends and Daniel himself. You know, that they stopped the mouths of lions. I reckon Daniel is one of those lives that is galvanizing. It's one of those stories that, goodness me, look at this man. Look at his faith. He's incredible, really. I mean, here he is. The story is that Daniel is a young man. And he's deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then he's put in the king's service and made a eunuch, in fact, uh, to serve the king. So that must have been horribly difficult for Daniel. He's young. He's taken away from his family. He's taken away from his home. And he's taken hundreds and hundreds of kilometers away to a strange land where he's a captive. Not only that, but he's made a eunuch, which, you know, in Old Testament times, Almost always means he's castrated. So he loses his manhood in that capacity. And he's there to serve the king. But David, Daniel, rather, in spite of all of that, he doesn't seem to falter. You know, he just, he trusts God and he says, I'm just going to live for God, you know, regardless. He finds this great courage. And as a result of that, the hand of God is on Daniel and he ends up, you know, being raised to be. a servant of Nebuchadnezzar and also of Darius were two of the greatest kings in, in history of ancient history of that time. You know, God's hand is on him. And then, he, you know, and then uh, because he does so well, he's also hated. And that leads to the story of Daniel being thrown in the lion's den. You know, I look at his life and I, and I think, you know, why is it that he lives so boldly? It's a great question. Why is it that he lives with great courage? It's a pretty simple point, this one, this lesson from the past, but it's one that we need to hear. Why does he do that? Well, the answer is that it that we're supposed to understand by reading through Hebrews 11 is that the reason he does that is because he has this concrete confidence in God. Because that's how Hebrews 1 goes. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of of things not seen. And so it's this assurance. I know is the idea that God is going to keep his promise. But it's, it's just that it's a promise. It hasn't been fulfilled fully just yet. But, you know, I believe totally that God is going to do that. And he's got reason to believe that. You know, often in society, and I hear it again and again, uh, is that faith, when people have faith, it's referred to as something that's a little bit uh, airy fairy. You know, it's a little bit light on substance. And as I reflect on that, I think, well, probably that's true sometimes. People maybe have faith in things that are a little bit light on substance. But it's actually not true of the Christian faith. Uh, I reckon when it comes to Daniel, without wanting to put too many words in his mouth, but I reckon that the reason why he's got such concrete conviction around these things is because he looks back and he reads his Bible the part that he has at this point in time. He realizes that God created the world, and it's God's world, and that we walked away from the table, that God started a rescue plan, which began with his great, 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 etc., grandfather, Abraham. And God said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to save the whole world. And that turns into the nation of Israel. And that's his history. That's his, that's his nation. And he knows why they are there. And then he has the story of Moses. And Moses, said, God says to Moses, if you follow me, I will bless you, O nation of Israel. But if you walk away from me, I will punish you. If you go after foreign gods, I'll send other nations after you and you'll be taken into their lands. But if you repent, I'll bring you back again. That's exactly Daniel's story. So Daniel follows God because he says, I believe this is true. This is the whole narrative of my life. It's the whole narrative of my nation. It is history as I know it. And I can see that we have walked away from God. But I am going to follow him and lead repentance, lead the way in order that God will bring us back, which is exactly what he does. So that's the case, isn't it? These people of faith, the way that we're supposed to understand Hebrews 11 is that the people of faith, all the ones that we've talked about in this passage, not just Daniel, but all of them had this concrete faith in God that's caused them to be willing to suffer. I mean, just listen to the passage again. It is so inspiring. It just reads well. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might again rise to a better life. Others mocking and flogging and even chained and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. I love that line. You know, they just, they just lived differently to everybody else. But then it says this. And it says, this is quite telling. These people had this ironclad faith. And what the writer of Hebrews is wanting to tell us is that if they had this faith, how much more should we? Because he says, all of these people... Though commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised. Ah, really? They didn't receive what was promised. What does he mean? Well, I think he's talking about Jesus there because he goes on and says, But God has provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So what he seems to be saying is that these people, they didn't actually live long enough to see the coming of the king. But we have. We are now at New Testament times. Jesus has come. And it's, just not, it's not like it's just an, an extra step in God providing you know, uh, the story. It's more than that. Jesus is the story. He's the center of everything. He's what everything has been working toward. That God is going to rescue this world through his seed that he's going to raise up through the nation of Israel. The great king is going to come. And then you look at passages like Isaiah 53. He's going, to, he's going to win the great victory. He's going to die for the sins of this world and take them upon himself in order that we might be made right with God. And so the writer of the Hebrews seems to be saying, look at their concrete faith. The lesson from the past, look at their concrete faith. How much more should we have concrete faith? Because we have seen Jesus who has changed this world. And I think 2,000 years on, in some ways, you could probably argue we have even more reason because Jesus just doesn't go away. You know, the story is true, and Jesus has changed this world like nobody else. So, so the lesson from the past is just that. Look at their conviction. Look at the fact that they suffered because they believed solidly in something, and, and that's what's supposed to inspire us, okay? It's a, it's supposed to, we're supposed to read back and say, I've got to give my life to something, because you do, actually. You are giving your life for something. You're going to die. Short of Jesus coming again in your lifetime, which may happen, and we look forward to that. But other than that, you are going to die, and you will give your life to something. What is it going to be? There's only one thing that really counts. That's the idea. It's a really challenging point worth reflecting on and living for that. Secondly, it's a story about now as well. See, I think that it's not just looking to the legends of the past that help us to lay aside every weight and sin. It's that for sure, but also God is at work in our lives to help us lay aside the weights and the sins as well, I take it. Because when I read through Hebrews 12 and go on a little bit from where Matthew was, it says this from verse 4. It says, in your struggle against sin... You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And this is it, listen to these words. My son this is God speaking. My, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son. Him he receives. So what that's telling me in that passage is that the suffering that these Christians are going through, which is what, you remember, it's like it's thrown in prison, being hated, having their homes looted, and martyrdom is just around the corner. All of that, which is wickedness and evil, is actually coming as discipline from the Lord who loves them. That's kind of an interesting thought, isn't it? I reckon that speaks to our lives and it's, it's, that's a thought worth playing out and thinking through, discipline from the Lord. I reckon lots of things in life is like two parallel lines running next to each other. You know, they're both very different and they're also both very true. You know, and they're running side by side. It's also true of theology a lot of the time. Two parallel lines running side by side. They're both equally true, but they're both very different. And when it comes to suffering, it's like that. Suffering on the one hand is evil, right? So we should always think of it that way. And Christians Christians have always thought of it that way. Suffering is evil. You know, suffering's in the world because of sin. Christians try and alleviate suffering, don't we? We feed the poor. We fight against injustice. You know, we say we want to stop suffering as much as we can because the kingdom of God is a kingdom that doesn't have suffering. you know. And so may your kingdom come. We fight against those things. And sometimes as Christians, we've also, interestingly, also fought against um, injustices when they've come into our own lives, not just for other people, but even into our own lives, when, when things have been done to us as Christians that aren't right, we have stood up over the years and said, no, we're not going to take that. In fact, there's this great example of Paul, you know, in Acts chapter 16. Remember, he's in jail in Philippi, and he's he's unjustly thrown in jail. And the next day, after the Philippian jail is converted, the authorities come and say, well, you can leave now. And Paul says, no, 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 we're not going to go anywhere. You're not going to just quietly usher us out of jail, we expect a public apology. We are Roman citizens, and we were treated poorly. This is not right. And so the idea is we're not going anywhere. This can get very public unless you come and apologize for the way that you've treated us. And they do. They apologize, and then they go on their way. I've been reading John Dixon's latest book called Bullies and Saints, and he tells about a story in the third century of how uh, Tertullian, if you know Tertullian, one of the greats, you know, in the third century there was persecution, against the Christians, and Tertullian writes to the leaders, and he says, unless this persecution stops, we are going to march in the thousands, peaceful protest on your courts in order that we might put pressure on you for these things to be turned around. And I guess he gets that idea from Paul, and it's because as Christians, we are opposed to suffering, and we say there are times when we need to say, no, we're not going to take that, that's not right, and we're going to stand up for others, and we even will stand up for ourselves at times. Why? Because suffering is evil. It's not right. But the other parallel line, if you like, is that suffering is also good. And see, so that's how it works. That is that sometimes we can't change the suffering. Sometimes it just comes into our life, and there's nothing we can do about it. And that's true. Every one of us, we all know that to some degree. It might not be persecution, but it might just be suffering nonetheless. And there's nothing you can do about it. But the beautiful thing is you're not a victim. You're not somebody who is um, just hopelessly at odds against the circumstances. No, because we believe in a sovereign God, a sovereign God who loves you and a sovereign God who is using this for his good pleasure to work in your life. And when the writer of the Hebrews talks about discipline, I take it that's what he's talking about. We're not always disciplined because we've done something terribly wrong although that could be the case. But I think generally it's not. It's not because we've done something terribly wrong that God disciplines us. But often he disciplines us because our whole thinking is wrong, just in general. We just are misguided. We put everything in the wrong place. And the idea of this is seen here where it says that in verse 11, for the moment, at the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And then earlier on, it says, why does God discipline us? For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. So that's beautiful, isn't it? God disciplines those he loves. If there's never any discipline in our lives, you should be concerned. Romans 8, you know, talks about us being, again, the idea of sonship, heirs, both genders, It's just talking generally, you know, in that sense. It says, but we are heirs with Christ if we suffer with him. So it's just a given for the Christian life. We will suffer because, according to Hebrews, it's the discipline of God. is changing our thinking, helping us to stop and see the world differently. And I really need that, apparently, because sometimes I'm disciplined and I realize I reckon I, reckon I know why. Maybe I haven't committed this horrendous sin, but the things of this world are the things I go after too strongly sometimes. You know, I love a sunny day. I, I, you know, I love beautiful relationships. I I love to have some wealth to spend on some things. I'm glad I got a roof over my head. I'm glad I got three meals a day. You know, and all of those things. And so I should be. There's nothing wrong with loving those things. They are very good things, and they're God's gifts. But the problem is, they get too big don't they? And that becomes the sum total of our lives. And we pitch our tent, we go after those things, and God says, no, there is more to life than that. And the thing that is more to life is him, is God. He wants to be the center of our universe. And so you can see that in the life of these Hebrews, these poor Christians. They're going through hard times. And this is not a, a word that's supposed to be, well, just, you know, suck it up, son. Now, God is a compassionate God. He's sympathetic. He loves us. He feels our pain. We see this and hear this in the light of the gospel. Jesus, who took on the pain of this world, he suffered in every capacity. He can identify with us. He suffered even more because he knew the rejection of the Father as he went to the cross. So, this is said within the light of the gospel, in the light of the cross. But nonetheless, we are supposed to realise that God is at work in our lives because He wants, because He loves us, and He wants us to realise that He is the all in all. He is everything, and so the things that you're going through in your life—it's good to reframe them and think about them that way. God loves me. I might be powerless in dealing with this, but He is teaching me who He is yet again through the storm, getting my attention. Been reading. Um, For my devotions, just recently I've started doing uh, a devotion with Tim Keller on the Psalms. Um, And just one day last week I was reading, and this quote stood out, and I thought it was actually a prayer that he had at the bottom, and it's just along the lines of what we're talking about. In fact, I've got it on the screen as well. He says, Lord, I want the gifts of your hand more than the glory of your face. Just an honest statement. I can root my happiness in amusements, in music, food, or nice weather, but let suffering enter the picture, and they show themselves to be the tawdy baubles that they really are. Without your constant presence and favor, no thing is a good thing. So I receive them with thanks, but I rest my heart and my hope in you. I thought, oh, that's good. You know, that's a wonderful prayer, really, because they are tawdy baubles. They can just be taken away in a moment but there's something that can't be taken away in a moment. And so the good things are only good things when we see them in the light of who God is and we keep him as centre. And God is disciplining us. That's a lesson, you know, that we need to learn from Hebrews about anchoring in this world. And then finally, the last point is a uh, vision for the future, really, which is this passage in uh, verses 2 and 3, well, verse 2 actually, we'll just focus on that, but... That therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great crowd of witnesses, verse 1, but then verse 2, let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus isn't just like the people in Hebrews 11. He is he's our greatest example in every way. And he's more than that. He's our savior. You know, I love verse two that we just read. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our life, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, sit at the right hand of God. It's the gospel itself, isn't it? He's the founder. There's a few segments in that. He's the founder and perfecter, the founder and the finisher. So what it's saying is that he started everything. He's God, everything in every capacity. And he first worked in your life to draw you to himself, and he will finish it. See, I solidly believe that Jesus doesn't lose any sheep. He's the good shepherd. So if you're truly his child, you will never be lost. He will get you to the other side. And then I backtrack that and I say, Ah, there's a lot of pain in our lives, a lot of pain in their lives. But you know what? It's never going to be more than what God Will allow you to have, if you look to Him and you trust in Him, He will He will not lose any of His sheep. You will not be lost because of the suffering, because of who He is. So He's the starter and the finisher, and He does that for the joy that was set before Him. You know, and that joy is His church. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are part of His joy. The joy that was set before Him. Listen to that. Jesus, he went to the cross and he endured that, which is one of the most horrendous deaths that anyone could ever you know, experience. That's why crucifixion was created. We, we probably, most of us have heard that. You know, It was excru- excruciating. The word excruciating comes from crucifixion because that's what it was. it was. It was developed to try and humiliate the scum of the earth that were being crucified, you know, the worst of the worst. So Jesus was impaled, he was naked, he was mocked, he was in agony, and he dies. But Jesus said, you know what? It's nothing compared to the joy that is awaiting. He's, he dies victorious. He's seated at the, victoriously, that's the idea, at the right hand of God. He defeats sin, Satan, and death in order that we might be able to have salvation and know God and enjoy eternity with him. And so the point is simply this, you know, the, the vision of the future is if, the, if that was the joy for Jesus, then it should also be the joy for us. You know, we need to stop and we say there is nothing greater than knowing God. Uh, and I, I was thinking about that this week. I thought there's no way I can do justice to this to that statement. There is nothing greater than knowing God. There's nothing greater than the fact that one day we will be in heaven. And for all the trappings of that, the great thing is that we will see God and we will be known by God and we will know God, you know, in ways that we have no idea of right now. And he is so glorious. So the most glorious thing that I can have right now, whatever that might be, whatever it might be, the most glorious thing you can think of. It's just, it's not even a shadow, is it? So we have to just say there is something far greater that awaits and that is knowing God. And Jesus says, I don't care how how hard it's been, that is the thing that is worth living for, that joy, for being victorious, And, and for us that's the thing that's, worth living for, being with God for all of eternity because of what Jesus has done for us, because he's such a great God. And so I put all that together and I think, well, you know, I need to hear Hebrews 11 uh, and this whole passage on faith because this world does suck me in. It wants me to go after it. But God is at work through the example of those before us through the struggles of our life today, disciplining us, getting our attention. And he's saying, look to the future, look to Jesus and what he has done and realize just what there is for you in that. So for you, Udinga Bay Baptist, uh, for myself as well, I think we have to ask ourselves a question, you know, how are we going with this journey of faith? What are the things that God is speaking to our life about? And no doubt there's going to be lots of things that we have questions on, things we can't work out. But ultimately, we need to hear this passage for what it is and let Jesus really be the king of our life and to live for him, live boldly for him, maybe stepping out in some ways that we need to step out in, that we've been holding back on, or maybe giving some things up that we need to give up because they're too big in our life, whatever it might be. God needs to be central. Let's just pray and ask for his blessing on us. Father, we thank you for... This passage, um, and I pray that you just speak into our lives on it where we're at. Father, wherever we're at, whatever it is that we're wrestling through, that we would see you for who you are. We'd have a greater glimpse of your glory. And we would look at those that have really lived boldly for you in the past and encouraged by them. But ultimately, Lord, we would look to Jesus and just have a maybe just may you give us increasingly a glimpse in our heart as we hear the gospel, as we discipline ourselves to hear the gospel through songs and through reading and through prayer. May, Lord, you give us a stronger glimpse of who you are in order that we might be strengthened, void, no matter what comes our way, to live for you. We pray in Jesus' name.